Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 13th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be looking at one of our top 10 movies of 2021 lists. And my name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by senior writer and chief film critic Chris Evangelista. Hello. Chris, you're the first one up. Uh, earlier this week, you published your uh, top 10 movies of 2021. And uh, since you were the first one up, I wanted to talk to you about that list. So, um, you know, we've talked about some of these movies, probably um, maybe all of them in some capacity uh, over the course of the last year on the podcast. But, um, you know, end of the year, start of a new year, it's a good time to, to reflect and look back on uh, on some of our favorites of the year. So, um I guess without any further ado, let's just get into it. So uh, I guess before we started, were there any movies that uh, that you wanted to mention real quick? I know you had like a, a long list of honorable mentions in your article itself, which of course I'll link to in the show notes, but were there, were there any among those honorable mentions that you wanted to um, like pluck out right now and just like put in front of people in case they, uh, that, that you think people should especially seek out? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a big block of text, uh, on, on the, the post, which I hope, uh, you'll go read listener. Um, that has a, like a whole bunch of stuff that didn't make the top 10, but I, I really think deserves attention. Um, you know, uh, nightmare alley, Guillermo del Toro's nightmare alley should be, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, Dune didn't make the top 10, but I really liked Dune. Uh, uh, not everyone loved it, but I absolutely loved Malignant, which is just an absolutely crazy movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, it Drive My Car, um, Come On, Come On, uh, The French Dispatch, uh, All Light Everywhere is a documentary that's currently streaming on Hulu that I, I really want people to seek out because I don't think a lot of people have even heard of that movie. Um, 
I loved seeing uh, Wrath of Man, the Guy Ritchie's movie, make your honorable mentions list. I really had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, Wrath of Man was really damn good. Yeah, I, I had sort of given up on Guy Ritchie, and then I saw that movie, and I was like, damn, this is really good. Because it's just so, it's just such a nasty, uh, bleak movie where, you know, the villains are basically, uh, you know, jerk-offs who, <laughs> who love guns, and they used to be soldiers, and they have nothing to do now, and they're just bored. They're basically people who work for, like, you know, military contractors who yeah. get hired to protect uh, rich people overseas. And their whole thing is, like, we're bored because we're not shooting anyone. Let's become bank robbers. And there's something, like, bleak and hopeless and very American about that. And I feel like a lot of people don't pick up on, you know, those themes going on in this movie the way they should. And uh, that impressed me that, you know, this is like a somewhat mainstream movie that's throwing dudes who are usually portrayed as heroes. Like the, the, the bad guys in this movie are the same sort of characters who are portrayed as heroes in like, uh, the Michael Bay Benghazi movie, the 13 hours. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's like a really subversive thing to do. And uh, I, I feel like not a lot of people gave Guy Ritchie enough credit for, for doing something like that here. But, yeah. hundred uh, yeah. percent. Okay. So let's get into the list the number 10 movie on your list was Annette. What did you like about Annette, Chris? Oh man. What's not to love about Annette. Annette is a, is such a interesting, it's a musical. It's got a, a puppet baby in it. Adam driver <laughs> does really bad stand-up comedy uh i saw a lot of people call this movie boring which is just utterly perplexing to me because i can understand not liking this movie but to call a movie like this boring is like i don't know what exactly you want but you know uh, uh you know i'm not saying like the songs in this are like toe tappers or anything like that like i honestly don't even like a lot of the songs in this but i just love how big and weird and strange this movie is and Simon Helberg, who is someone I don't really care about, is just so good in this movie playing this really miserable conductor guy. Uh, so this movie just really, really impressed me. And I, I can't not love a movie like this that comes out in our current movie landscape where everything is so safe and and normal and predictable. And none of those those terms apply to Annette. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the I, I found myself not really caring for this movie too much. It definitely was not boring. But at the very end of the movie, there's this uh, this scene between Adam Driver and his daughter that made me like uh, really stop in my tracks and say like, "Oh, wait a second, do I actually like this movie?" And I, I think it it definitely like raised the film's um, you know uh, position in my mind uh, by a huge amount. Um, but yeah, ultimately, like the the music is just so I mean this is a very very strange movie and the music sort of reflects that too so I think if the music was like more um yeah like you said like sort of a toe tapping like if the if the, the songs were like full-on bangers that really got stuck in your head I think that may have yeah, gone a people, long way but people aren't even really like seeing it they're like doing that like talk singing yeah thing where like they're just like I'm going to the store it's like what the hell <laughs> so I, again I understand if you don't like this movie but I I was just uh very wowed by it and I was the whole thing felt to me like and I think you can leave sketch, but played like somewhat straight. And that's yes. kind of why I love because it just everything just feels really weird and off kilter. Like at the end of the movie, there's this scene where drones airlift the Annette puppet onto a stage. And it's like, how can you not 
be a little bit into that. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's a net. That's actually streaming on uh, Amazon Prime Video. That's an Amazon original, so you can check that out right now. Um, your number nine is The Last Duel. Chris, what'd you like about this one? Yeah, Last Duel is great. Uh, this this flopped like a lot of great movies this, uh, not this year, last year. And that's a damn shame. Um, I sort of understand why this didn't do so well. You know, it's dealing with very heavy subject matter. It's de- dealing with sexual assault. And not everyone's going to want to sit through that. And I can't. I can't fault anyone for not wanting to even subject themselves to that. That said, uh, this movie is a lot um, smarter and uh, better than I think people gave it credit for without even seeing it. Like, I think people were just thinking this was going to be another, you know, Ridley Scott action flick. And that's how the the trailers kind of sold it. And that's really not what this is. This takes um, that sort of Rashomon approach where it it tells uh, one story from, three different perspectives and it's very much an indictment of just really shitty men who think they're they're heroes like Mm -hmm. all the men in this movie are just awful but they all think of themselves in this like these glorified heroic terms and perspective is a big point big reason why this movie is so fascinating because uh, you know there are three main characters there's matt damon's character who is a knight uh there's adam driver's character who is a squire, and there's a Jodie Comer's character, who is is Matt Damon's uh, wife, and uh, Adam Driver's character is uh, accused of of raping Jodie Comer's character, and the story is set up. The film is set up in three different ways. So the first half of the movie, or first segment of the movie, is Matt Damon's point of view. Second segment is Adam Driver's point of view, and the final segment is Jodie Comer's point of view, which ends up being you know the the re- what really happened and. What I found so interesting about this, uh, this is just the way the script handles those perspectives and also how Ridley Scott handles that, those perspectives because he'll do this thing where he'll shoot a scene one way in the, you know, in, in the Damon segment. And then when it gets to the Jodie Comer segment, it's the same scene, but he doesn't even change it that much. He just pulls the camera back a little bit. And that slight camera adjustment shows us different perspectives and shows us how, you know, things we assumed were completely wrong. Like the the first, you know, the Matt Damon segment, it really makes Matt Damon's character out to be sort of like a good guy. And, you know, you sort of sympathize with him. And then by the time you get to the Jody Coburn segment, you, you realize he's just as bad as, as like every other shitty guy yeah. in his movie. And I thought that was such a fascinating way to, to tell this story. And again, I don't fault anyone for not wanting to, you know, sit through, this heavy subject matter because the sexual assault scene does play out twice here. Uh, so again, if you don't want to sit through that, you know, uh, I get it. But if you, if you think you can stomach that, and if you haven't given this a chance yet, I, I really urge you to seek out uh, the last duel because, you know, I'm a fan of Ridley Scott. I, I even liked, you know, alien covenant, which everyone seems to hate, but I think this <laughs> is like one of the best movies he's made in, in a long time. So I, I really was impressed with this. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, your number eight movie, Procession, is another one that sort of is along those same lines where, you know, you I remember you and I talking about this when we first saw it and like saying, you know, I wouldn't blame people if they didn't want to engage with this. But I think uh, the fact that it showed up on your, your end of the year list and mine as well, um, I think speaks to how highly we think about this movie. So what, what did you uh, make of Procession? Yeah, this, again, yeah, this is a very uh, hard movie to watch and it, it's often emotionally devastating, but it, I think it's a really important film. Um, this is from Robert Greene, who's a documentary filmmaker who makes very uh, different sort of documentaries in our, in our current landscape where all documentaries sort of follow the same 
Earl Morris, you know, uh, talking head approach. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Earl Morris, you know, please don't kill me, Earl Morris. <laughs> but but um, this is about um, a group of men who were all sexually assaulted as, as children by uh, Catholic priests. And now they're a lot, they're, they're adults and uh, they're dealing with, you know, the trauma via drama therapy. And uh, when we talked about this before, I mentioned this, but I'd actually never even heard of drama therapy. I've heard of art therapy where, you know, you, you, you paint, you draw and stuff like that to, to work through your, your, your issues. But drama therapy is, you know, it, it is what it is. It sounds like it's, you know, writing and acting and directing and, you know, in things to, to deal with that trauma. And that's such a unique idea. I can't, I don't think there's like, I'm sure there are other movies that portray this, but I can't think of any that mm-hmm. mention something like this. And so the movie is about these, these six guys making their own little short movies that, uh, deal with, you know, their assault. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's just, it's, it's brutal stuff, but it, it's also cathartic to watch these guys process, uh, you know, what happened to them. And, uh, the, you know, there's this, there's this part at the end, um, uh, they pick like one boy to play basically all of them in all the segments, which is also kind of an interesting idea. And at the very end, the, the boy comes up to one of the survivors and he says to him, like, I want you to know I tried my best to tell your story. And just him saying that, like, like destroyed me. I was just like, Jesus, like, I can't like handle this. And, you know, nothing actually happened to me. Just I can't even imagine what it sound like feels like to hear that, you know, if something like this happened to you, like it's just, yeah, just like the maturity of that kid too, like yeah. being in that position. It was just, yeah, what man, I mean, so powerful. So yeah, this is a great movie. This is currently on Netflix. Um, uh, I'm sure even if you have Netflix, you probably didn't notice it because it you know probably got buried to make way for fucking don't look up or something like that. <laughs> so please seek this out. This is a, a, a really great Netflix original. Yeah, the, the one thing that I, um, you know, we, we have a, a big group list of the best movies of 2021. And I wrote about procession and that and one of the things that I mentioned in there is like, in, in one of the most surprising aspects is that sort of drama therapy angle you're talking about, like in a really completely genuine and totally not crass way. This movie kind of speaks to like the, even though it sounds really cliche, like the power of cinema, like these guys using, the, you know, the the art of acting and filmmaking stuff that we spend a lot of our time thinking about to work through and sort of recreate the, the most horrific moments in their lives, but also uh, experience that catharsis you're talking about. And it's really like, uh, you know, uh, I guess, aside from the, um, the personal uh, uh, aspect of like what it means for these guys, it also, I think speaks largely, you know, on, on a more broad level to like the, the power of movies, like with something that we're always talking about that I, I think it's a really good example of that there. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So then your number seven is the power of the dog. Uh, this is a movie that's getting a lot of acclaim this year. And uh, I actually have a question about this movie f- uh, for you that I want to talk about here. So I guess before we get into like the spoilers for this, um, which I'll, I'll mark here in a second. Um, what did you think about this one? Yeah, this is another Netflix movie and you know, credit where credit is due. You know, I give Netflix a lot of shit cause they produce a lot of shit like red notice, but this is, this is a Netflix movie and it, it's fantastic. Um, this is a Jane Campion film. It's, it's, it's like a Neo Western and anti Western, whatever you want to call it. It's not a traditional Western. Um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, you know, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is a good actor. I, I've never like watched a performance of his and been like, what a shitty performance. You know, I think he's good in general, but 
I think this is, uh, you know, without a doubt, the best performance he's ever given where he, he plays this, this rancher who is just nasty as hell and he's just mean and he's cruel. And uh, one of the things I found so much, so fascinating about this is like midway through the film, we learned that he's like, he actually has this like Ivy league education and he could literally be doing anything else. And uh, he doesn't, you know, he certainly does not need to be, you know, a rancher out in the, out in the fields getting dirty and stuff like that, but he does it because he's, uh, you know, adopted this sort of like, almost generic cowboy lifestyle, this idealized cowboy lifestyle. And um, his brother is played by Jesse Plemons and his brother gets married to a widow played by Kirsten Dunst. And she has a a teenage son played by Cody Smith McPhee. And, you know, they all, they all come to live together and Benedict Cumberbatch's character just cannot stand Kirsten Dunst's character for reasons that are never really explained just because he's, you know, just a miserable bastard. And he, he sort of torments his torments her into becoming this, alcoholic who is seems like in serious danger of, of dying from alcohol poisoning. And uh, this very strange thing happens where at first uh, Cumberbatch's character is very, you know, cruel and nasty to Cody Smith, Cody Smith McPhee's character, because that's how he is with everyone. But then the two of them develop this very strange, uh, I guess you could call it friendship. And um, I, I won't say anything more because I'm sure people have not seen this yet. And uh, one of the things I loved about this movie is when I first saw it, I saw it at um, TIFF with really no knowledge of what it was, just that, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch was in it and Kirsten Dunst and all that stuff. And what I, what I really loved about this movie is that it doesn't really clue you into what's really going on until like the last five minutes. And, that's such a risky concept and that really could have backfired, but it works so well here. And when you finally realize what has been, you know, what this whole thing has been leading up to, it, it was, I was just like, Holy shit, what a good movie. So, <laughs> so yeah, power of the dog. Now what's your question, Ben? Okay. So I'm going to spoil the end of the movie. Um, so if you've not had a chance to see this yet, please uh, fast forward a couple minutes. Cause I just had a question. So I, I saw this one time, Chris, I have not gone back and like rewatched it on Netflix or anything. Um, I remember just being very taken with the look of the movie, but the very end of the film kind of threw me for a loop a little bit because my question is uh, how long did Cody Smith McPhee's character know that he was going to do what he ultimately did at the end of the movie? Like, do you, is there a moment in the film that you can pinpoint as like him, um, you know, uh, the light switch going off in his head of like, Oh, this is what I need to do. Cause the, the end of the film sort of reveals that a huge chunk of the movie, maybe all of the movie from Cody Smith McPhee's perspective has been about this manipulation of the, the Cumberbatch character in order to get close to him so he can ultimately get rid of him and and sort of save his mom. Because like the opening line of the movie is, for what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother, if I did not save her? Um, so that seems like, you know, a little clue that Jane Campion is dropping of like, this is what this movie ultimately is. And she really, like you said, sort of holds her cards really close to the best until the very end of the film. I was just a little confused after one viewing uh, I honestly think he's he's had that plan almost all along because there are these okay. like, there's these subtle hints that this this kid is maybe a sociopath. Like there's mm-hmm. an earlier scene where he like kills a rabbit in order to, to dissect it, which I'm sorry, that's not normal. <laughs> so yeah, 
and he if he were like a little younger you could shrug it off as like oh he's just a kid but he's like you know 16 or 7 i mean i don't know how old he's supposed I to think be he's like, like going to college right or, there, or right or actually something. he's like yeah. he's, tw- he's got to be like between 18 and 20 something mm-hmm. so he's not a, a kid kid so murdering a, an animal just to cut it open is kind of a weird thing and you know he he finds uh the way he he bit he you know kills benedict cumberbatch is he gets he convinces him to make this rawhide rope and Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't realize the rawhide is um, from a cow with anthrax and uh, Cody Smith McPhee finds the, the dead anthrax cow pretty early in the film. Like he finds it up on the mountain and he, he skins it and we don't really know why he's doing that again until the end. So mm-hmm. at the very least he he's had this plan to get rid of Benedict Cumberbatch for a long time. And I think yeah. maybe he was sort of just waiting for, the moment to present itself. Yeah, man. It's such a, a fascinating movie. Just the, the dynamics between those two characters are like endlessly uh, really interesting to, to sort of go back and, and think about. And, and yeah, this is one that I definitely need to watch again, especially knowing how it all sort of plays out, like what to be able to track exactly the, uh, the sort of internal um, measurement of, of what Cody Smith is, is working on there. It's, it's really interesting stuff. So, uh, yeah, check it out on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, uh, Chris, your number six is Spencer, a movie that you've talked about a little bit, but, um, tell me what, what you loved about, uh, Pablo Lorraine's Spencer. Yeah. Spencer. Great movie. Uh, um, Kristen Stewart, I was going to say Kirsten Dunst again. Kristen Stewart, uh, is Princess Diana. Um, uh, and she's she has to spend a, a long holiday weekend with her in-laws. And that's hell for everyone. But it's hell for her, too, because her in-laws are the royal family who are just a bunch of inbred <laughs> weirdos who love tradition and don't really clearly don't really care about her. And, um, uh, you know, this movie is very unsubtle. There, you know, there, there's no real subtext here. It's very blunt. And so I can understand if... Um, that turns people off, but it worked for me. Uh, Kristen Stewart's performance is just phenomenal. Um, and uh, this plays out uh, kind of like a horror movie, really, where uh, it's almost the whole movie really is almost completely from Princess Diana's point of view. And she's sort of having this very slow moving, nervous breakdown throughout these, these three days. And uh, it's portrayed in this sort of horror movie way. And there's a lot of like, uh, callbacks to the shining and the way it's shot in this like big sprawling house. And uh, a lot of the shots are even very much quoting, you know, shots from Kubrick's film. So mm-hmm. it's clearly intentional. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I absolutely love this. And I, I kind of love that even though we all know, you know, Princess Diana is ultimately doomed to die in a car accident. The movie kind of ends on this somewhat hopeful note where, it, you know, it, it's her having, after going through all this trauma and torment, she finally gets to have sort of like this, this nice, relaxing, pleasant moment. And uh, it ends on that note where it's like, all right, not her whole life wasn't completely, you know, miserable. There were these, these rare uh, happy moments and, you know, those are worth pointing out too. And so, yeah, I, I, I love this. I was very close to asking you if you had any favorite moments or like favorite scenes from this, but I just remember that I think next week we're supposed to do our big like best movie moments of 2021. So maybe ah. we'll just save that conversation for for uh, that point and maybe tease that for uh, for listeners. So let's move on to your number five, which is The Green Knight. Uh, what did you love about this one? Yeah, this uh, David Lowry's The Green Knight. It's you know it's based on uh, that the epic poem uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but it's also 
a lot like Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, which is such an interesting idea to to graft onto this story. And uh, Dev Patel, just fantastic. Uh, he, he, yeah, I feel like everyone knows the story. He cuts off a, a knight's head, and then a year later, he has to go let the knight cut off his head uh, because the knight is supernatural. And the whole movie is basically about him sort of learning to not be this lazy uh chivalrous free uh what's the word i'm looking for yeah he's just kind of like a, a roused about yeah, or something. He, he's a bum he's a yeah. he's a bum basically you know if he he's, he'd be sleeping on your couch if it was modern times and uh you know it's all about him learning to have honor because honor was a big thing back then you know and uh there's this you know the whole movie is great the way it's done in this sort of heightened magical way but I particularly love the, the big climactic thing, which is lifted straight from the Ascentation of Christ, where uh, right before he's about to get his head cut off, he has this whole elaborate uh, sprawling fantasy, fantasy about what it would be like if he went back to Camelot and became king. And uh, all, you know, just that the way that plays out is so, so damn cool. And, um, and uh, I, I particularly like that this movie is, in in the grand scheme of things, this is a low budget movie, but it looks so much better than like huge blockbusters. Yeah. And uh, and I really think that you know, obviously that's due to you know the the, the technical aspects, you know, the, the special effects crew, but it's also due to how David Lowry shoots this stuff. He shoots it in a way that makes it look much more expensive than it really was, and mm-hmm. that's that's no small feat. So yeah, great yeah. night. Awesome stuff. All right. Number four uh, was another movie that was also on my list. Pig from uh, Michael Sarnowski, I think the, the director's name is. Uh, what did you think about this one? Yeah, Pig. We've, we've talked about this before and we talked about the sense that, you know, the setup, which is, you know, Nicolas Cage is a guy who's, whose prized pig gets kidnapped and he goes looking for it. You know, that makes it sound like, oh, this is going to be you know, a John Wick clone with a pig and with Nicolas Cage. And don't get me wrong, that sounds awesome. But that's <laughs> not what this movie is. This movie is a lot more quiet and reflective than I was expecting. And uh, I particularly think this is a great reminder that, you know, as, as memefied as Nicolas Cage has become as, as much as we associate him with big over the top, weird performances, Nicolas Cage is a great actor. And if he finds the right material uh, to click with, he's, he's like almost unbeatable and he's so friggin' good here. And he's, he's so quiet and, and it's such a good, uh, you know, after the last two years of him playing big, loud characters, it's such a interesting turn to see him remind us all that like, oh, there's a lot more to this guy than just being, you know, a grinning weirdo. And uh, <laughs> the movie is just so like melancholy and, and, and sad and beautiful. And, you know, it's ultimately about characters trying to find things to care about in just a really shitty world where there's mm-hmm. not a lot of things to care about. And I feel like we can all sort of relate to that, especially these days. So uh, yeah, this, this, this like knocked me for a loop when I saw it earlier in the year, because like I said, I went into it expecting, you know, that John Wick clone. And instead I, it left me like weeping when it was over. It was just like, that's not what I was expecting at all. So yeah, man, there's this really great scene where cage goes into this Portland restaurant. That's like super fancy and like really expensive. And he talks to the chef and basically like 
the he had a prior relationship with that chef and knew the chef when the chef was like up and coming and like was really passionate about like uh you know opening an irish pub and just cooking like simple basic foods and instead he's sort of spun off into this whole uh you know upper tier upper crust world of super expensive fine dining stuff and cage like tastes the food if my memory is right and he's just like what are you doing, man? Like, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but he's just like, this isn't you. Like, this isn't what you were interested in. And he's so quiet and so direct. And it's like the guy, it's like he sees directly into this guy's soul. And the guy is just like com- totally rattled by uh, that, that sort of quiet intensity that Cage brings here, which is just so opposite from, you know, the, the sort of overblown uh, gif friendly uh, Nicholas Cage that like some audiences have come to know. So uh yeah fully agree it's it's definitely well worth your time i think that a pig is streaming on hulu right now yeah it is okay great so um yeah please check that out if you're looking for like a a really really strong nick cage performance i think it might be i have not seen every single nick cage movie so i I don't think i'm i'm fully equipped to say this but it it might be his best uh, performance it's definitely like top five best Nick Cage performances. It's got to be somewhere in there for real. Yeah. Okay, so number three on your list is a movie called Wild Indian. I would venture to say that most people listening to this have not seen this movie because uh, it's a, a pretty small film, but why did this one uh, make it onto your list, Chris? Yeah, I got to say it kind of bums me out how how little uh, regard I'm seeing for this in people's end of the year list. And you know, like you said, it is a small movie, but critics are supposed to see small movies and I, I don't think I've seen a single critic list that has included this movie anywhere, which really bums me out, man. Uh, I saw this uh, at, at last year's Sundance Film Festival, uh, the virtual one. And uh, the minute I saw it, the minute it ended, I was like, that's going to be somewhere in my top 10 list. And, you know, it, it's pretty much hovered around the, the top five ever since then. Um, uh, this is about uh, an indigenous uh, man, his, his indigenous name is Makwa, but he's now living as a, as Michael and he's living in California and he has a wife and he has a baby on the way. Uh, but at the beginning of the film, we see um, he had this really awful, abusive childhood when he was uh, living on a reservation with his parents. And um, I'm, I'm going to be vague here because like you said, a lot of people haven't seen this yet and I want people to seek this out, but Something happened when he was a kid involving him and his cousin. Uh, and it was a really bad thing. And him and his cousin, his cousin's name is Teto. They, they covered up what they did and they just sort of moved on with their lives. And they both went to very different paths. You know, Michael has, has found success, whereas Teto has, has actually just gotten out of jail now as an adult. And um, the two of them sort of come back together through a series of events. I'm sorry. I'm being so goddamn vague. I just, I really want people to seek this out because yeah. uh, it, it deserves to be seen, but this is just, um, this is like a slow burn, emotionally uh, taxing drama. Um, Michael gray eyes plays uh, uh, the Michael character. And he is, is so goddamn good in this. Um, and so is uh Chessie Spencer. I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name, but he plays the, the adult Teddo. They're both just, phenomenal like two of the best performances of the year are in this this little movie that seemingly no one has seen um i i would really urge people to seek this out it's it doesn't seem to be 
streaming anywhere, which is really goddamn annoying. I guess you can <laughs> rent it. Uh, please, please look for Wild Indian because it's it's so goddamn good. Yeah, I just looked this up. It's it's available if you subscribe to Stars. It's on there. Uh, if you have a Canopy account, which I think is free, oh, okay. it's free. If you have a library card in some cities, I tried to set up uh, a Canopy account at my local library here in in Florida, and like the library has to opt into it or pay a yearly subscription fee. And because nobody in my area knows what Canopy is, they haven't done that. So I don't have access to it. So that may be the place for some smaller cities. But if you're in a big city, uh, you could check out the Canopy thing. Uh, It looks like it's also available if you have DirecTV or Spectrum, maybe if you just like search the library within there. So it seems like those are some ways to find it. It's also like three dollars to rent on amazon and voodoo right now so uh for for a movie that made it this high on chris's list it's it's very you know it's not perfectly easy to see but it, it's easy enough to see and i would encourage people to to seek it out for sure um okay number two chris licorice pizza uh i still have not had a chance to see this one yet but feel free to talk about it in whatever terms you want to yeah uh this is the new paul thomas anderson movie uh so i was pretty much in the tank from the get-go because i love me some paul thomas anderson but uh, this movie just charmed the hell out of me. Um, I, I know there are some complaints people have, and I, I don't want to really discount people's uh, personal feelings. So, you know, if you, if you don't like this movie for certain reasons, I I hold no grudge against you. But for me, it, it really worked. Um, it's kind of hard to describe this movie because it's, it's so, like, formless and shaggy, and there's not really a plot. It's just, like, a bunch of characters just hanging out in – the San Fernando Valley in 1973. And uh, that is might it not... like everybody wants some in that way. I actually like have a... never, I have never seen that. So I do. Okay. Or, or like, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the other Linklater movies are like that too. Like the, uh, like Days and Confused. Is yeah. Kind of it's, like... it's, it's, it's kind of like that. It's a hangout movie where, okay. you know, it's, it's not about the story. It's about the characters just hanging around. Um, uh, but at the center of it all is this, this child actor named uh, Gary Valentine, who's played by Cooper Hoffman, which who is the, uh, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, he's a high school student. And then there's this 20 something uh, young woman named Alana played by Alana Haim. And uh, they, they strike up this very unlikely uh, friendship and it's clear they sort of have crushes on each other, even though they probably shouldn't uh, not even, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about like the age difference. They're just they're They shouldn't probably not be in a relationship, but um, uh, this is just a, a funny, charming kind of, melancholy little movie uh alana haim is so good in this i um i can't remember the last time i saw like a debut performance that uh surprised me this much not surprised just impressed me because you know she's she's not an actress she's you know she's a rock star and uh this is her first real acting gig and to to sort of come out of not nowhere but to come out of nowhere and deliver a first performance that's this good and this confident and this memorable is um, it's almost like annoying. It's like, Oh, you're already a <laughs> rock star. And now you're like a great actor too. like, you know, save something for the rest of us, Alana. Hey, yeah. but, <laughs> but uh, uh, Bradley Cooper shows up in this for like one scene where he plays John Peters, who is a real person. He's a, he's a producer. He used to be a hairdresser. Uh, he became Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. Uh, then they, started a relationship together and then he sort of parlayed that into becoming a movie producer. And, uh, and uh, when I was reading up on this film, I learned that Paul Thomas Anderson actually asked John Peters permission, you know, to use him as a character in his film. And John Peters said yes. And 
if you have seen the movie, you'll realize how crazy that is because Bradley Cooper portrays John Peters as this like coked out lunatic who just like <laughs> runs around threatening to kill everyone he sees. And the fact that like the real John Peters is like, yes, that's fine. Go ahead. Portray me that way. It's just amazing. Um, oh man. Elite so, yeah. stuff. Legendary right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> awesome. So I think uh, Licorice Pizza is still in theaters. As far as I know, it's not streaming anywhere yet. Uh, otherwise, I probably would have watched it by now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for for that uh, or seek it out if you can safely. Um, you're number one, Chris. West Side Story. No surprise here. You're a huge Steven Spielberg fan. You host a podcast about the guy. Uh, but um, what did you think about this one? Yeah, I, I've said a lot about this movie. Um, I, you know, I'm always excited for new Spielberg. Uh and Spielberg has been talking about making a musical for pretty much his entire career. And he finally made one and uh, it was, it was worth the wait. Like even, even as a Spielberg movie, this is uh, this, this still completely blew me away. Like from the first shot alone, where the, the way the cat, the way he moves the camera and the way uh, he sets things up. And um, I honestly think this is like one of Steven Spielberg's best movies. And that's, you know, that's saying something because he's got a lot of great damn movies, but uh, this is just phenomenal. Um, and again, didn't do well at the box office. I'm a little more confused about that than I am the last duel. You know, I understand why the last duel did not do well. I don't quite get why people did not want to go see a Steven Spielberg musical. Maybe I'm just, I have literally reached that old man stage where I'm just too <laughs> old for the world. I just, I, I feel like, Steven Spielberg made a musical should have been a huge deal and people just didn't care. And, you know, I get it. There's a pandemic and stuff like that. But if you can go see the, the 20th Spider-Man movie, you should be able to go see this too. But uh, yeah, I think that the problem, Chris, is that like the, the demographic that would be interested in, or, or I guess more primarily interested in West Side Story is like older than the one who would be interested in, in Spider-Man. So like, yeah, the people who saw Spider-Man just like are out there, like living their lives in the world and don't really care as much about staying safe and, and, you know, or, or staying safer or as safe as right. possible. Um, so like, I, I wonder if you think that, um, you know, cause they, they held West Side Story for a while. I think it was supposed to come out in 2020, right? Yeah. It was supposed um, to come out. Yeah, the holiday season of 2020, and then they pushed it to holiday season of 2021. I wonder if you if you think you know with the uh, with hindsight, uh, sort of a Monday morning quarterback perspective, like should they have held this movie longer or released it on streaming? So maybe like m the people who it was actually kind of more primarily targeted at would have been able to watch it. Then do you think the conversation about about the movie would have been different if that happened? Yeah, it's so hard to say because. A year ago, I would have said this will be over soon. But now, who knows? Maybe it'll never be over. So yeah. maybe there's maybe there's never the right time. And while I'm sure this will play great on any screen, I do feel like this is one of those movies that should have been seen on the big screen because it's got big musical numbers and they're shot really well. Unlike most modern musical numbers, where uh, people direct musicals now and for some reason they they shoot the whole movie in close-up which is just really bizarre to me and steven spielberg understands that no if you're making a musical you need to see the the performers moving and mm -hmm. so he stages these huge you know numbers and they look so good on the big screen but i think they'll you know they look good on the small screen too so uh i just hope that whenever this comes out on on blu-ray and i guess streaming i don't know where it'll stream maybe Disney Plus, it's technically a Disney movie. Maybe it'll stream on Hulu. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, if it does stream, I do hope people who didn't bother to see it in theater finally 
get around to seeing it and realize, oh, this is a legitimately great movie and I wish I had seen it in theaters. Yeah, I hope so too. I think that's the that's the best we can sort of hope for for this movie's legacy, right? Or, or not legacy, but uh, immediate uh, next steps, I think. Um, just because of it's, yeah, so, so disappointing to see like the, you, you just, you know, I, I don't really care about, um, about box office that much, but uh, it's just such a shame to see something that's so uh, precisely and beautifully and wonderfully made, uh, like not have a good response. That, and then some other things, you know, the, just the um, the sort of uh, inequality or like per- perceived inequality of like where the money flows. Uh, that's probably why I don't pay too much attention to box office stuff because it just gets depressing after a little while. But um, yeah. it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not concerned with, you know, People are going to lose money because all the people involved in this movie are rich. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like it sends this it, – it just sends this shitty message to producers that people don't want movies like this. They only want Spider-Man. And I'm not – you know, I'm not throwing Spider-Man under the bus. I like Spider-Man movies too. But if that's the only thing that's doing yeah. well, we're in trouble Like, because – I don't want there to only be Spider-Man movie. I want, (laughs) I want there to be, you know, movies like this too. And if no one is seeing them, studios are going to stop making them. And that's, that's shitty, man. I don't want, I don't want to live in that world, but I I think we're, that's the world we're headed to. I really hope that, that people, and this, this may be like a naive thing to say, but I really hope that the people who are making those decisions uh, understand that there are, you know, like the biggest extenuating circumstances possible right now. And are not like shaping their entire uh, portfolios for the studios for the next 10 years based solely on what's happened over the last two. Um, but uh, as you said, you know, maybe th- this situation will get better. Maybe we'll, maybe it'll, there never will be a good time and we'll sort of have to like ease into whatever this bizarre new normal kind of situation is. And then those, uh, those decisions might actually get cemented in a, in a real way. But my hope is that like, at least for a, a while, people are like uh, pressing pause on, on using the last couple of years as like, okay, this is the definitive benchmark on which we should base every decision we're making. So yeah. um, fingers crossed on that. We'll see. But uh, but yeah, Chris, man, this is a, a really great list. And um, for the, the listeners out there, uh, he's gone you know much more in, in detail on each of these movies. And I encourage everybody to, to click on the actual list and read those as well as like the, the full list of uh, honorable mentions because all of those titles are, are definitely worth uh, seeking out as well. So um, check that out. And I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Um, Uh, Yeah, this podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.